going to pray one more time and we can dive into God's word. Father, we come before you once again to uh, praise you, Lord, to thank you, Lord, and I ask that you would give grace during our time in your word. Give us grace to continue to worship you, Father, and please give me grace to preach with boldness and truthfulness and clarity, Father, and we pray that by your spirit you would work uh, in the hearts of everyone in here today. We know it's only by your spirit uh, that any real change happens, so we pray you would do that. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. My name is Tripp, uh, and, and I'm grateful to be here with you this morning. Thank you for having me again. I'm grateful to be able to preach God's word to you. Um, I guess my wife and my son walked out. I thought he was going to have another chance to sleep through one of my sermons, but I guess not. He would rather cry in the back. Uh, so... Uh, I want to look at Mark 5 today. You don't have to turn there yet, though, because um, I just want to start uh, by talking about stories. Uh, stories are something that, since the beginning of time, have just always kind of been around. People have loved stories, and there are always certain kinds of common themes in many of the stories that we tell, uh, and, you, and you can even think about it through some of the stories uh, that you love, but whether, you know, different kinds of stories, whether they're tragedies or, or comedies, uh, Across all these different kinds of stories, there are common themes, and two themes show up in almost every single story. These themes are good and evil. Think about some of your favorite movies. Uh, Braveheart, which is one of my favorite movies, and is a good man movie that every man must like. Braveheart, of course, you have William Wallace. He's, he's good. You want him to win. And then you have the bad guys, England, King Edward. You want them to lose. And you get to watch this story. You get to see his integrity. You're pulling for him the entire time, and you're happy when good wins. What about the Chronicles of Narnia? You have good. You have the kids. You have Aslan. And then the bad, you have the white witch, and you're watching it the whole time, and you're pulling for the kids in Aslan, and you're grateful when good wins at the end of the story. Even kids' movies, even Disney movies. Think about Aladdin. Don't pretend like you don't know about Aladdin. Think about Aladdin, right? You have good, you have Aladdin, you have the genie, and then you have bad, you have Jafar, and, you know, you're pulling for him the whole time, and you're glad when good wins. So you almost always want the good side to win, and they almost always do in all of the stories that we tell. So when we begin to talk about Jesus and we begin to talk about God, people sometimes think in the same categories. They think of our world and our universe as this kind of cosmic battle that's going on between good and evil. And in all of our favorite stories, we're waiting to the end to kind of see who wins the battle. But the question I want to ask is, should we be thinking about our universe this way? Should we be thinking that we still have to kind of wait to the end to see whether good or evil is going to actually win this story? Who's going to triumph in the end? Should we think of Jesus as just another agent of good that we're hoping, you know, is the good character that wins in the end of the story? Uh, when in the Gospel of Mark, we didn't get a lot of opportunities to see Jesus interact with the forces of evil face to face. So we're going to look at this. And what I want to say is I think there is a big battle between good and evil going on, but I don't think the fight is fair, and I don't think there's any question about who wins in the end. So turn with me to Mark chapter 5. As you turn there, I just want to get a little acclimated with where we are in Mark's gospel. At this point in the gospel, Jesus had been teaching and large crowds began to gather and, and listen to his teaching. 
Then when evening came, he got on the boat and he sailed away. And as he sailed away with his disciples, this, this crazy windstorm came. And the disciples are, are freaking out. They're going crazy. They're panicking. And, and they said, Jesus, will you help us out? Why are you relaxing? And so Jesus looks at uh, the storm, the winds and the waves, and he says, peace be still. And so when that happens, then the disciples, they really don't know what to do because they're saying, who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey him? So the disciples are starting to understand that this is more than just another rabbi. This is more than just another teacher because when he speaks, things obey. When he speaks, even nature is obeying him. So they were met with extreme opposition on the seas, Right? And as soon as they start to relax, as soon as they, they get in and they step off the boat, they're met with more opposition. So I'm going to start reading Mark chapter 5, verse 1. It's a little bit of a long passage, so stick with me. Mark chapter 5, verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately they met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. But he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged them earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him, that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. That's the word of God. So what I want to do is I want to walk through this text and I want to draw your attention to different parts of this particular story. Number one, first thing I want to draw your attention to is Jesus encounters the demon-possessed man. Jesus encounters the demon-possessed man. 
So as soon as Jesus and his disciples step off the boat, they're met by this man with an unclean spirit. And so unclean spirit is basically another way of saying demon. This man who met them was possessed by a demon. And the description that the text gives us of this man is, is chilling. It says he lived among the dead. He prefers the company of the dead to the company of the living. He had superhuman strength so that no chains could restrain him. He just broke them. It says he was always screaming and and crying out. He was physically harming himself, beating himself, cutting himself. This man is disturbed. It's kind of hard for us to to imagine this. It's kind of hard for us to imagine this kind of demonic torment in our day. Uh, One reason being that many of us don't really believe in these kinds of supernatural things. We don't believe in the kind of stuff you can prove with with science. And then secondly, it's not so much we don't believe in the supernatural, but we've never really seen this kind of thing before. We've never seen demonic torment in person, but I want you to use your imagination. What we want to do when we come to passages like this in the scriptures where we see stuff we've never seen before, we don't want to say, I've never seen that. That can't be real. What we want to say is, I've never seen this before, but it's in your word, God, and I believe it's true. Help me understand what this means. So I want you to use your imagination for a moment. What would you do if you saw a man like the one described here? Say you're you're driving home one day and you drive past a graveyard and you see somebody living in the graveyard screaming in pain and torment. You probably would not walk up to him and say, hey, nice to meet you, right? I know me, what I would probably do is I, I would probably call somebody to come get him, right? We would probably institutionalize this kind of man because he seems like he's a danger to himself and he's a danger to other people. He needs help. Well, the people in the country of the Gerasenes didn't know what to do with him, so they tried to chain him up, but they didn't work. But it didn't work, and I'm sure they were afraid. And there are people like this in our day who were literally tormented like this man with voices in their heads and violent tendencies who, who cut themselves. And we, we usually classify it as just insanity or depression, but I'm sure in many of these cases, maybe not all, but in many of these cases, it is demonic oppression. And similar to the townspeople in the story, we don't really know what to do with them, so we try to restrain them too. We just have more modern ways to do this, right? We don't tie them up with chains, but we put them in padded rooms and we put them in straitjackets and we give them medications, But for this particular man, the cause of his craziness is not just some incident that happened in his childhood that altered his state of mind. This man is being tormented by demons. They've taken over his body. And and I would think that this man doesn't like living like this. He's oppressed. He's being imprisoned. He's a prisoner, and he's being tortured against his will. Brothers and sisters, I, I don't want you to be deceived into thinking that demons are not real. Demons are real. Demons are are spiritual beings. They're evil spiritual beings that are working against God and his purpose. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus has a lot of run-ins with these kinds of demons. He has a similar incident in chapter 1. And most of the time when we see demons in uh, Mark's Gospel, they're oppressing people and attempting to destroy God's creation. And with this particular man, they're dehumanizing him. They're trying to make him act like a beast. They're trying to destroy the image of God in him. Demons seek to undo and hinder God's purposes in the world. And God has in his sovereignty allowed these evil forces to be at work. But another way I don't want you to be deceived, I don't want you to think demons only work like this. 
Demons don't only work in this way, with, with possession. Now, as we know, believers who are indwelled with God's spirit cannot be possessed by demons, but that does not mean that demons cannot in any way harm us or influence us. They're still at work attacking us. They tempt us to sin. They, they spread false teaching. First Timothy 4, Paul calls false teaching the doctrine of demons. I don't, I don't want us to be deceived also to think that there's no spiritual warfare besides this kind of demonic possessions. Demons are responsible for much of the evil in the world. And, of course, we're always responsible if we give in to their influence. But we should be aware of them and understand they're enemies of the living God. Now let's get back to the man, though. So, you know, the demonic forces, they're, they're too strong to fight off. Nobody's been able to deliver this man. He's been in the tombs trying to get as far away from people as possible. But when he sees Jesus off in the distance, he doesn't try to get away from Jesus. What does he do? He runs to him and he falls down before him. And so this is where the passage gets a little tricky because the demons speak through this man. But I think the text leads us to believe that the man was in control when he ran to Jesus. He sees Jesus, and he knows that maybe Jesus can do something about these demons that torment him. Maybe Jesus can free him from oppression. He sees the possibility of relief, and he runs at the chance. And I I think we can learn something from the demon-possessed man here. He didn't know how anybody could deliver him, but somehow he knew who could deliver him. Some of us need to come to this same point of brokenness where all we can do is run to Jesus. We need to stop clinging to our willpower. We need to stop clinging to our money. We need to stop clinging to our friends, and we need to run to Jesus. Some of us need to come to that same kind of point of brokenness where we understand, I'm not really sure how I can be delivered, but I understand who can deliver me, so I'm going to run to Jesus. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. We don't know how we can be delivered all the time, but we know who can do it. His name is Jesus. And similar, when we're dealing with people who are mentally unstable. We shouldn't stigmatize them, hate them, ridicule or laugh at them. We should have compassion on them. More than anything else, they need to be delivered, so we should serve them holistically. We can use medication if needed, but we need to point folks to Jesus for deliverance and pray that they meet him. They need an encounter with the living God. Medication can subdue us, and counseling can help us think more clearly, but only the Lord Jesus Christ can make us whole. We need to point folks to Jesus. So let me draw your attention to another part of the scene. Number two, the demons speak. Number two, the demons speak, which is my, my favorite part of this passage, I think. So as soon as the man runs to Jesus and falls down before him, he cries out, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. The text says he cries that out because Jesus was saying, come out of him, you unclean spirit. And I think this shows us that it's the unclean spirit inside of him that's talking. It's not the man, it's, it's the spirits inside of him. So we've already established that Jesus and the demons are not on the same side. Jesus is the son of God and the demons are working against God's purpose. So let's try to put this into perspective. That he runs up and they say, what have you to do with me? This would be like it was a war. Uh, say, say the U.S. is at war with another country, and uh, they have some 
some American prisoners of war. And American troops go to get those prisoners of war. But when they show up, the other side is like, ah, U.S. Army, what are you doing here? Please, please, don't, please don't bother us. Now, you would think, now, now isn't this a war? Right? Why are you acting surprised that they came? And why are you giving in in this way? Shouldn't you be fighting instead of begging? But I think this reveals that this isn't a normal war. There's something different about this battle between Jesus and these demons. So I want to look at four things that this encounter with Jesus shows about those demons and their relationship to Jesus. Number one, they know who he is. They know who he is. The demons don't have to ask who this is standing before him. As soon as they see him, they recognize him to be Jesus. They say he is Jesus, the son of the most high God. They don't just know his name, but they recognize his status. He's the son of the most high God. Which, which actually sounds a lot like Peter's confession in Matthew 16, where he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Here we have demons actually proclaiming the truth of God. These demons have more uh, keen insight into spiritual things than the townspeople that were around them. They know who Jesus is, and yet they rebel. Which I think shows us a frightening truth that you can know who Jesus is without knowing him. Right? You can come to Delray Baptist every single weekend. You, you can go to seminary, you can listen to every podcast, you can read every theology book, but don't assume because you know who Jesus is that you know him. Knowing him has to do with a deep, intimate relationship, interacting and loving and trusting Jesus on a deep level. Knowing about him is really nothing more than memorizing facts. Memorizing facts is not what God has called us to do, and God is not impressed with your book smarts. You know, some of us really pride ourselves on being able to say true things about God, but good for you that you can say true things. Demons can do that too. Look at what James 2.19 says. He says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. My demons can say true things about God as well. If your knowledge of God has not led to a changed life, then you're not doing any better than the demons are. True faith shows up in our lives. And knowing Jesus is different than just knowing about Jesus. Second thing this interaction shows us about the demons and their relationship to Jesus. Number two, they know that Jesus will oppose them. Right, the man says, what have you to do with me? Basically, why are you here? Leave us alone. They know that Jesus, the Son of the Most High God, has come to bring the kingdom of God. They know Jesus has come to do away with evil and to make all things new, and they understand that that includes their destruction. They know that in the end, they will be destroyed and that Jesus Christ will reign. Number three, they know that he is more powerful than them. They know that Jesus is more powerful than them. They say that their name is Legion. Right, so we ask what their name is. They say Legion, and this is meant to show us that there are many of them. In Rome, a legion was five to 6,000 soldiers, right? So we see how strong they are. We're talking at least 5,000 demons. Maybe that's why this man had such superhuman strength. And even though there are these 5,000 demons in this man, they plead for mercy. 
Right? They understand he's more powerful than him. There's no reason for fear if you're more powerful than your enemy or if you even have a chance. You don't have to, to fear them. I don't know if you've ever seen this before. I used to see this all the time in high school where there'd be two dudes who had issues with each other for whatever reason, and they were acting like they wanted to fight, but they didn't really want to fight. Right? They'd be like, you better not come. come. You're lucky this dude is in front of me. Right? Stay right there. You're lucky this dude is in front of me. Right, but they're, just, they're really just talking a big game. They don't really want to fight. People who, who know they can't win a fight, they, they don't want anything to do with it. And this is what we see here. What we see here is a weak, defeated enemy begging for mercy. They understand they cannot defeat Jesus, so they don't want to fight him, and they beg for mercy. Number four, they know that Jesus is their authority. They know that Jesus is their authority they realize that they have to ask for permission, right? You don't ask for permission from your equal. You ask for permission from your authorities. All throughout the scriptures, we see that evil forces need God's permission for anything. Think about the story of Job. Satan needs God's permission to touch Job and is only allowed to do as much as God will allow him to do. These evil forces can't go anywhere or do anything without the express permission of Jesus. And they understand this. Now, can you imagine what our world would be like if God did not restrain these evil forces at all? I mean, surely surely these demons would, would love to do to every single one of us what they've done to this man. But God has not given them permission to. He's restrained them, and we should praise God for that. As much horrible stuff goes on in our world, we should understand that God restrains way more than he allows. And we should praise him for that, that he's protected each of us uh, from these kinds of things. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. These demons in this passage were made through Jesus and for Jesus. They are rebels, but they're still being used as pawns in in God's grand plan to show himself off. They're under Jesus. And we see the power of the word of Jesus here, too. So just like the scene before where Jesus speaks to the winds and the waves and he says, Peace be still, and the winds and the waves obey him. Right here, he's speaking to these powerful demons, and these demons obey him. We see the authority of the word of God. Jesus is God, and when he speaks and he commands, it must be done. He commands. The word of Jesus is more powerful than the most powerful artillery, more powerful than the most powerful weapons. Scripture tells us that he holds the universe together by the word of his power. There's nothing more powerful than the word of Jesus. And that should change the way that we handle and enjoy the word of Jesus. What we're doing here today is sitting under the most powerful thing in all of the universe, the word of Jesus Christ. That's an amazing thing. And brothers and sisters, we, as, we, as we think about his interaction with these demons here, we, we have to live under the firm conviction that Jesus actually is the Lord of Lords. Right in the, in the story before this, he shows his lordship over creation with the winds and the seas 
uh, obeying him. Then he shows his lordship over evil forces in this story. The next story, he's going to show his lordship over death as he raises somebody from the dead. And we have to really believe that Jesus is actually the Lord of Lords. I know we say he's the Lord of Lords, but sometimes we feel like maybe he's Lord over this arena, but maybe there are kind of other areas where he's not actually the Lord. But the Bible teaches us that there's absolutely nothing that exists that's not under the authority of Jesus Christ. There is no tree, no sound, no insect, no animal, no atheist, no Muslim, no Hindu, no angel, no demon, no devil that is not inferior and under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is really the Lord of lords, with no exceptions. And so God may allow rebellion for a time, and he may allow them to go apart from his lordship for a moment, but Jesus will make all things new, and he will bring all things under his feet, and his people should eagerly await that day. So I want us to, to keep moving, and I want to draw your attention to a third part of the scene. Number three, Jesus delivers the man. Number three, Jesus delivers the man. By his powerful word, Jesus has just cast out these demons. Right? He gives them permission to go into the pigs. And when the people see him the next time, he's clothed and in his right mind. The last time they saw him, he was cutting himself, bruising himself, screaming and crying out. The next time they see him, he's clothed and in his right mind. By his mercy, Jesus restored this man because Jesus has come into the world to restore his creation. It's so messed up by sin and death. And he's reconciling all things to the Father. And he shows his mercy to this man when he delivers him. And this man, even though he was oppressed, he was a sinner like you and me. So he didn't deserve to be delivered. He didn't earn this deliverance somehow. But the beautiful thing about Jesus is Jesus doesn't deliver us based on what we deserve. He doesn't wait for you to earn it before he shows you mercy. I mean, that's, that's the definition of mercy. Jesus is merciful because Jesus is merciful. It's just his character. He's loving and he, he cares for his creation. So we should praise God for that kind of mercy that he's shown us. There is no spiritual being so strong. There's no sin so strong. There's nothing that surpasses the power and authority of Jesus because everything is subject to him. And when he does deliver, he does it out of his own mercy, kindness, and grace. So I'm not sure what kind of stuff we're wrestling with here today. I'm not sure what kind of trials we have going on in our lives. I'm not sure what kind of sins we're struggling with. I'm not sure what kind of addictions we're struggling with. I'm not sure what kind of marriage issues that we're struggling with. But when we look at a passage like this, we should be reminded that the Lord Jesus Christ can deliver us from absolutely anything. I mean, you look at the kind of bad shape this man was in. Jesus can deliver us from absolutely anything, from sin, addiction, depression, pain, abuse, a, a rough marriage, whatever it may be. Jesus is your healer and your deliverer. And so it may look hopeless, but we see the delivering power of Jesus Christ. I've seen with my own eyes the Lord Jesus deliver people out of marriages that look absolutely hopeless. I've seen with my own eyes the Lord Jesus deliver people from addictions that had a hold on them. I've seen with my own eyes the Lord Jesus deliver young men from addictions to pornography. The Lord Jesus can deliver us from absolutely anything. 
That's one of the ways that demons would love to work in our lives is to infect us with the kind of unbelief that thinks Jesus can't deliver us from something. And we do this all the time with our, with our sins where we don't believe that the Lord can actually make us more like Jesus. And that's more sin there. That's the sin of unbelief. Jesus can deliver us from absolutely anything. And as we see, he loves to do that by his word. His word is powerful. Let me draw your attention to another part of the scene. One more part of the scene. Number four, the people respond. The people respond. So after this deliverance, I mean, we we know that this man has had an incredible encounter with Jesus. But not only this man, I mean, the entire town has had an encounter with Jesus, right? They were there. Many of them saw. They witnessed the whole event. And I can't imagine. I mean, this is a, this is a crazy story. I can't imagine witnessing this with my own eyes. But even some who didn't see it with their own eyes, they heard about it. It says they, they scattered and they told everybody what happened. So let, let's think about how everybody responds to this encounter with Jesus. The townspeople, how did they respond? The text says they were afraid. They had never seen this kind of power and authority. Maybe they're angry that they lost their pigs. Their pigs ran off the cliff, right? They didn't know how to respond to Jesus, and because of that, they actually beg him to leave. You would think after you see this kind of amazing display of power and mercy, the last thing you would do is ask this guy to leave. I mean, even selfishly, you would think they would say, oh, hold on, stick around and fix some of my problems. But that's not what they do. They're afraid, and they beg him to leave. And that seems like an insane response. But many people today, in our day, they don't like Jesus either. Jesus disturbs their normal pattern of life. Jesus tends to make people uncomfortable. They would much rather have nice, comfy, stay-in-a-box Jesus, but that Jesus doesn't exist. If you're looking for that nice, comfy Jesus, it's not going to disturb your life at all. You're probably going to be looking for the rest of your life because he doesn't exist. Jesus shakes things up. Jesus demolishes darkness, and he calls us into the light. Don't make the mistake of the townspeople. Don't be afraid of Jesus. Don't beg him to leave. How does the demon-possessed man respond? The demon-possessed man, the former demon-possessed man, he responds with gratitude. He's, he's grateful. He wants to follow Jesus, and he, he begs to be with him. So while the townspeople are begging Jesus, get out of here, please, we don't like you, the, the former demon-possessed man is begging Jesus, can I stay with you? Can I go with you? Jesus, though, tells him to stay and to tell other people, and the demon-possessed man obeys him. This is the right response to an encounter with Jesus, a burning desire to be with him and to follow him and to do what he says. This is the way we should respond to encounters with Jesus. We should want to be his disciples. We should want to follow him. We should want to learn from him and be with him. That's what the text says about what the man did. It says, and he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Everyone marveled. I want to ask you this morning, when was the last time you told other people what Jesus has done for you? I want you to think about that for a second. When was the last time you told people what Jesus has done for you, what he's delivered you from? It doesn't have to be as dramatic as demonic possession, but 
What kind of things has Jesus delivered you from, and when was the last time you told people? It could be deliverance from a particular sin struggle. It could be overcoming temptation. It could be a trying time in your life. It could be healing from sickness or just telling other people how the Lord Jesus has saved you. Whatever it is, let me encourage you. Tell other people what Christ has done for you. It's one of the things he's called us to do. It's one of the easiest ways to testify to the grace of God. I find it interesting that this isn't Jesus' last time in the region. This isn't the last time that he comes to this region of the Decapolis. So I want you to turn with me to uh, chapter 10. I said chapter 10, but what I meant was chapter 7. Sorry. Please turn with me to uh, chapter 7. We're going to start at verse 31. This isn't Jesus' last time in this region. Chapter 7, verse 31. It says, Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee and the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Now, if you read this, this this is totally different than the last time Jesus was in this region. The last time he was in this region, they said, please get away from us. We don't like you. This time he's in this region. They're actually bringing people to him. Right. They know Jesus to be a healer. They they know that Jesus can do amazing things. And then look at the way they respond this time to the work of Jesus. They say he has done all things well. And I can't help but think that this has something to do with that man that Jesus healed who's going around proclaiming to everybody in the region of the Decapolis and people are marveling. He's saying, everybody, listen to what Jesus has done for me. I can't help but think this has something to do with that. And as he proclaims it, people's people's perspective on Jesus begins to change and it shows up the next time that he comes through that region. Now, I would imagine that this church, Delray Baptist Church, has a passion for people in this area to know Jesus. They want people to know what Christ is, who Christ is. And the way that that's going to happen is people, believers who are in this region, telling people what Christ has done for them. And here's a great example of what God will do with that sometimes. Even if there are people who are hostile to Jesus, who do not like Jesus, who are indifferent to Jesus, who don't really want to follow hard after Jesus, If you would tell them what Christ has done and pray that God would meet you there, I think the Lord would do some amazing things. And Lord willing, we can look up months from now, years from now, and say the Lord has done something about the way people see Jesus in this area. Pray that the Spirit of God would do that work. We need to tell others about what Christ has done. So we think about these two contrasting responses from the townspeople and from the man. 
we, we can see that it is possible, like the townspeople at first, to witness the power, the grace, and authority of Jesus and to still not be his disciples. So some respond with confusion, others with hostility, and some with just mere applause. This is how people respond to Jesus. None of those are the response that God calls for. And this particular victory over the evil forces isn't the only victory. It's not even the biggest victory that Jesus had over evil forces. At the end of Mark's gospel, we see a victory over evil that blows this one away. Colossians 2.15, Paul talks about it. He says, speaking of Jesus, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Though Jesus won many battles against the enemy during his time on earth, the ultimate defeat happens at the ends of the gospel on the cross, where it appeared he had been defeated for a moment, but when he rose with all power and he put the demonic forces to shame. He embarrassed them. He showed everybody how weak they were. He erased their influence, and he dealt the final death blow in advance. And now all of their rebellion is in vain. Now, all of their fighting is in vain. It reminds me a little bit of the, uh, the Republican primaries where it was really clear that Mitt Romney had already won. But it was like, you know, Ron Paul and Rick Santorum, they were, like, they were still going. People were like, that's cute, but you, you know it's over, right? right? We already know how this ends. And in many ways, this, this is what it's like with evil forces right now. They're still fighting. They're still rebelling. But we already, knows how, we already know how it is. We already know who wins in the end, and his name is Jesus. He's already dealt the final death blow at the cross. And when he returns, he will finally defeat all of his enemies. What the Lord Jesus Christ did on the cross, was he took on the forces of evil by taking our sin on him. Every single one of us has sinned against God. And the Lord Jesus took all of our sin upon him on that cross. He bore the sins of those who would trust in him. And when Jesus rose from the grave, he defeated the devil, he defeated sin, he defeated death, rose with all power, and he's called us to put our faith in him. Now, how will we respond to that victory over evil? Will we do what the townspeople did and said, no, thank you? Or will we do what the former demon-possessed man did and say, I want to be with you. I want to follow you. I want to obey you. That's the proper response. The only proper response to what Jesus has done on the cross is turning from our sins and trusting in him. And it's only by putting our faith in him that we can benefit from that we can benefit from what he did for us on the cross is only by putting our faith in him. That's how we should respond to this Lord. And as I think about this story, I think this is the kind of Lord I want to follow. I want to follow the kind of Lord who's the Lord of all things. I want to follow the kind of Lord who can tell the winds and the waves to just calm down at any moment. I want to follow the kind of Lord who can snap his fingers and have demonic forces fall back. I want to follow the kind of Lord who can deal that final death blow to sin, death, and the devil. That's the kind of Lord I want to follow. I think that's the kind of Lord that all of us should want to follow. When we think about the kinds of evil things that still happen in our world, as was mentioned earlier, the, what happened in, in Libya, we think about even what happened a few months ago, we think about uh, this attack on this movie theater. And when we see these kinds of things, I mean, 
we're usually angry, and that's the right response. We should be angry. We should be grieved. But we should not feel hopeless and discouraged. Because we know that even while these sorts of things happen, Jesus has already dealt a final death blow to evil. Jesus is finally victorious in the end, and the final blow has already been struck. That because of that triumph, we should run to Jesus, we should fall before Jesus, we should call on Jesus, we should trust Jesus, we should follow Jesus. And like that man, we should tell others about Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Praising you, Father, as the victor over all evil, over all sin, over all death. And we thank you for your word. And pray, God, by your spirit, you would do a work in us, that we would trust Jesus as that Lord of lords, that we would follow him, tell others about him. Father, I pray you would be with the Delray Baptist Church, that they would be a church characterized by worshiping this Lord of lords. That they would be a church characterized by telling other people about the work of this Lord of Lords, that there will be many conversions, there will be many lives lived to the glory of Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.